Hello and welcome to the Lydia McGrew channel, uh, the video channel on YouTube and the audio podcast version of this same content on Anchor FM or uh, any of a number of other audio outlets. We are continuing and this will be the last contentful video in my series on how Jesus sounds in John. It may be the last of all. I am somewhat debating whether to do a separate uh, summary video, but I'm leaning towards not doing that and moving on to other topics next week. But uh, this is an important one because <clears throat> it concerns the Greek language <clears throat> in John. So I want to give you the elevator pitch version of this video right here at the beginning and then if you're interested you can listen for the rest of it in more detail um, hopefully you will be interested but this is probably the most technical of the of the series that I'm doing the elevator pitch version is that we have gone through meaning after meaning uh, of what could be meant by how Jesus sounds in John and how it differs from how Jesus sounds in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what we have left are matters of purely linguistic style, that is, Greek word choice. And these are utterly trivial. They are easily accounted for by such causes as naturally paraphrastic memory, uh, differing translations of Jesus' words originally uttered in Aramaic but having the same meaning, um, selection, sort of accidental selection, and probably some of all of the above are contributing to this. And so in no way do these matters of Greek verb choice um, or I should say actually usually conjunction choice, uh, word choice, support the idea that John, or for that matter, the synaptic authors, are putting their own words in Jesus' mouth in, in the sense of putting their own interpretations, elaborating, embellishing, trying deliberately to change it and make it sound um, different in some thematic way from what they knew Jesus really said. So there's no no support for that. Uh, and, and this is what's left, you know, are these really, really trivial verbal matters. Now I want to make a brief digression here at the outset about uh, Greek credentialism. And credentialism, as I use the word, is the practice of dismissing what someone has to say or uh, very, very credulously and automatically accepting what someone has to say based solely on a specific credential that that person has or lacks. Um, and just saying, hey, I'm just going to automatically believe this person or I'm automatically going to not listen to this person because of this credential or that credential. Um, I, I think if this is the in the area of Greek, as uh, the mystery religion view of studying Greek. And uh, by that I mean that, you know, like you had those Gnostic mystery religions in the ancient world, 
and uh, you weren't permitted to reveal to anyone outside of the religious community what you had gone through in the the mysteries like the Eleusinian mysteries and you go into this secret thing and you go through it and um, only those who were initiated gained this special knowledge. Um, the mystery religion view of either Greek or Hebrew or whatever is this idea that everybody who formally studies Greek for X number of years and gets this credential and so forth, they've been initiated and inducted into a mystery religion, and they're the only ones who are allowed to talk with one another and disagree with one another about anything that has any connection in any way to um, that language. Okay, And everybody outside just has to say, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, I encountered an extreme version of this recently in a uh, uh, dialogue I was having on social media uh, with someone. I don't, I don't know this person, but he comes in occasionally and comments. And uh, he was taking the extreme view that even though my position on the range of meaning of a particular Greek word agreed with some that of some some very, you know, completely well-credentialed scholars, and it was a very specific thing about the meaning of the word known uh, in John 18 concerning the fact that the beloved disciple was known to the high priest. And so I was saying, well, my position agrees with this scholar, disagrees with that scholar, and here's the research that I've done to, uh, to, to come to that conclusion. He was saying, since I myself uh, do not, since I, Lydia, do not read Greek, as in fact I do not, I have no right to have any opinion on that at all, um, even though I was not promoting an opinion that is some kind of way out fringe view. There, there are just differences of, of opinion on the range of that Greek word. And I was daring to disagree with C.K. Barrett, a, a, the late C.K. Barrett, a, a pretty liberal uh, Yoenin scholar, and he was just like, you know, how dare you? And I said, well, you know, I'm agreeing over here on the meaning of this range of meaning of this word with Craig Keener and the late John Wenham, um, you know, and they have all the credentials you could wish. But according to him, I was just supposed to stay out of it altogether. So that's the uh, the mystery religion uh, approach. And I, I think that that's not correct. And I would encourage you to listen to the arguments in this video, read the arguments in the eye of the beholder and just take the arguments as they are and not assume, hey, it has to do with Greek. Lydia doesn't read Greek. Um, and by doesn't read, I don't mean that I don't know what the letters are, okay? But, um, and I have studied some Greek, but I can't pick it up and read it. Um, and therefore, you know, I'm just gonna tune her out. In many, many cases, these are um, matters where the, the argument can be stated as far as what the data are concerning the language. And then after that, it's a matter of inference and and deciding, you know, how much weight to put on this or what follows or what doesn't follow. And that is not some kind of highly specialized thing. Um, for what it's worth, the eye of the beholder has received accolades from a lot of very, very knowledgeable scholars who definitely consider it worth reading. That doesn't mean they, um, you know, agree with everything in it, but that they do not agree with this dismissive approach that Lydia is not the proper kind of scholar, she doesn't have the proper kind of credential, ignore her, not at all. And some do agree with these conclusions who 
really know their, their languages. Um, and I also had the chapters on how Jesus talks in John, where I was talking about Greek, especially checked by people who know the Greek language well and said, hey, you know, if I've got mistakes there, tell me what they are. And uh, there were some suggestions as far as literature to take into account, but there was no um, statement like, oh, you just, you don't know the the argument here, or you're missing this because you don't know Greek. Um, so I was, you know, I was really careful about that. So pay attention to the arguments. Um, don't just tune out the arguments because of a credential. I think you'll also see that in what we're discussing here, right here, um, I'm not taking a contrary position to knowledgeable scholars on the, the, the data, the details of the Greek data. Um, but I am siding with some over others on the implications uh, because it tends to be these trivial matters of Greek wording tend to be swept up into an alleged cumulative case for John's having embellished Jesus' words, even though these specific types of points don't support that at all. So it's really a, a, a higher level conclusion where I'm siding with more conservative scholars on that, as you've seen in other videos as well. Okay, end of that little digression. Now I want to emphasize here, as I've emphasized other times, that the differences between John on the one hand and the Synoptic Gospels on the other hand here do not concern parallel passages. In other words, John and the Synoptics are not giving different versions of Jesus' words that are clearly him saying the same thing uh, or approximately the same thing on the same occasion where they're differing as to wording. Um, we find a lot of those parallel passages in, in the Synoptics, you know, where you'll have slightly different wording between parallel passages uh, in Mark and then say in Matthew or something like that. Uh, slightly different wording, I emphasize here. But it, with John and the Synoptics, it, these aren't parallel passages. Uh, however, in this case, uh, precisely because these are such trivial matters of wording, thematic selection is unlikely. So I've talked in previous videos in this series about thematic selection. Jesus um, might have been talking about how he came to bear witness to the truth or something like that. And if that's a topic that John's interested in, then he's more likely to select to report that passage, or at least it's plausible that he would be. Um, but these aren't thematic matters. They are, you know, very, very minor matters of wording. And so in that sense, they are more likely to reflect linguistic habits, whether they're Jesus' linguistic habits or Luke's linguistic habits or John's linguistic habits. Um, they are more likely to reflect something like just a, a, a mode of speech. And in that sense, are uh, harder to explain from the perspective of selection and that's why I use the phrase accidental selection up above, um, coincidental selection, but not deliberate selection 
where someone is saying, oh, you know, I'm more interested in that because he's talking about that theme. So in that sense, they are more likely to reflect things like how Jesus spoke or how John spoke or how Luke was linguistically trained or something like that. Um, but again, what we have is some kind of alleged um, uh, statistical contradiction, as I called it, which is a shaky argument, um, where you find something more often, some sort of um, Greek usage more often in John than in the synoptics. I want to start with one that is, is in a sense, not, not even Greek, because it's a word borrowed from Hebrew, um, which is the word amen, and um, it sort of show you how this kind of thing works in something that's just very easy to see. We have a contrast in that John, when he records Jesus introducing his sayings with amen, which is sometimes translated truly, sometimes translated verily, uh, and so forth, he will introduce it consistently with two, amen, amen, okay? And the synoptics, while they have that, you know, truly I say unto you, will consistently, it again, in other sayings, they're not the same saying, introduce it with uh, one amen. Okay, so two, two amens versus one amen. Verily, verily versus verily, okay? Um, and so this is something that allows you to see how trivial these differences are. In fact, um, there's actually confirmation here because it's kind of an unusual thing. Nobody else in the gospel says, amen, amen, I say to you, or even amen, I say to you. It indicates kind of personal authority, you know, listen to me. <laughs> and so in a sense, we find a confirmation that both the synoptics and John indicate that Jesus tended to introduce things in this sort of emphatic, unusual way. Um, so they're agreeing with one another there. Now, we also find an interesting sort of confirmation that Jesus sometimes doubled introductory words in, in an indirect way in the synaptics because he doubles um, people's names. So Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. Simon, Simon, uh, Satan has wanted to have you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Okay, so with names direct address, we find Jesus doubling that, that introductory word. And that's kind of a neat sort of indirect confirmation of doubling. It's very Semitic kind of sound. Um, we should also remember that the synoptic selection itself is parallel. And so we are not finding uh, a lot of independent indication that, you know, Jesus only said one amen. Um, so for example, uh, truly, I say to you, the rooster will uh, not crow twice before you have denied me, that he says to Peter. That's in the synoptics, and it's introduced with one amen, but it, it, it's parallel within the synoptics. So whatever you think the, the uh, literary relationship between them, it's not like they're saying, uh, you know, or even, you know, indirectly indicating in this, in some sort of independent way that Jesus, you know, only used one truly. 
Um, and there are other instances like that. Truly, I say to you, there are those here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God. Um, and that's in more than one synoptic with that one truly. Now, what, what I think here is that we may very well have what I call paraphrase in opposite directions. And here's what I mean by this. Let's suppose that Jesus sometimes said, amen, amen, I say to you. Okay. And sometimes said, amen, I say to you. It's just one. Um, if we imagine Peter, for example, remembering Jesus' words, and perhaps because it's, it's quicker to say, dropping one of those amens, then he's paraphrasing. Again, this is a, a real use of paraphrase. This is not uh, one of those strange uses of paraphrase where they're making stuff up or embellishing stuff or that kind of thing, but literally recognizable paraphrase on that occasion. He's paraphrasing in the direction of um, dropping an amen. So Mark uses it. Then if we imagine Mark as a source for Matthew, uh, Matthew uses it and you know, there's nothing in, in Matthew's memory of that where Matthew is saying, oh, no, no, he really said two, and I got to put two in there, okay? So we find non-independent usage there where there's a paraphrasing in the direction of dropping or simplifying. In John's case, um, with his, his strong memory, he remembers that Jesus at times said, uh, truly, truly. And so if we suppose that maybe on some of the occasions where we have amen, amen, in John, he actually might have only said one. John is tending to uh, to remember consistently or paraphrase consistently in the direction of having two because he knows that sometimes he really did say two. So some of his, maybe he really did say two and maybe others of his, he's just the naturally paraphrastic nature of memory. He's making it consistently two, not deliberately, I know that he only said one and I am going to add another one, but just that the mind tends to uh, to, to pattern things in one direction or other. Um, and so that if you have that paraphrasing going on in different directions, then you have a wider gap between the, the, uh, the statistics on both of these. And yet it is in no way a matter of like trying to make Jesus look different or putting your own words in Jesus' mouth. All right, so that gives you a taste for the triviality of this. This is where we really want to be using not verbatim, didn't have uh, tape recorders and that kind of thing and where it's legitimate to use it. Um, okay. So I'm going to move on to another one, a little more geeky, a little more detailed, known as the contrastive chi or the adversative chi. And this is where I'm going to urge you, listen to my arguments, listen to what I have to say. <clears throat> the data I'm getting here are from the text and from, uh, you know, very learned, knowledgeable Greek scholars. But then uh, it's a question of, you know, different people, um, interpreting this different way as, as far as, you know, do we throw this into the mix and say, oh yeah, this means that, you know, John is engaging in a paraphrase of the freest kind, because you'll see, you'll just see, it's just a matter of the data, that this isn't a paraphrase of the freest kind. This 
trivial difference. Okay, what is the contrastive chi? Or what is the adversative chi? Well, so chi uh, is often translated and. It's a very simple kind of um, connective. It's a connective. Many of these matters of, uh, you know, detailed, nitty-gritty, Yoanian language are matters of connectives. Um, and it's most often trans translated as and. But John tends to use it, and he uses it fairly with some frequency, both as the narrator and when reporting Jesus' words to mean and yet, or yet, okay? Uh, despite this, yet that. So an illustration would be in, in the narrator's voice, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's the King James translation, which is, is quite literal. Um, well, what does it mean? Despite the fact that he came to his own, his own received him not. He came into his own, and yet his own received him not. You might translate it as, but he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Um, and you find this in, in Jesus' words when he's speaking to uh, Nicodemus. He says, uh, we testify of what we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Again, it's that, and yet, despite the fact that I'm testifying of what I know, uh, you receive not our witness. And I think he's thinking of um, Nicodemus there as a representative of some of the, the Jewish leaders. Another one, uh, in John 7, you received the law from Moses, and none of you keep the law, and yet none of you keep the law, but none of you keep the law. But he's, it uses Kai, okay? Now, um, this is in a sense not good Greek, and this is sort of part of the, the simplified nature of John's Greek that he loves. He loves Kai. So does Mark, by the way. Uh, Mark uses Kai just a lot, though rarely in this contrastive meaning. I'll give you one example, which may be the only one. I'm not sure if it is the only one, but it's, if so, it's uh, if it's not the only one, it's one of the only ones in the narrative in Mark. But Mark also likes Kai. Um, Greek has connectives that are contrastive. So de which he would um, alliterate as de, is a is a weakly contrastive connective like but. And then there's a stronger connective ala, which he would transliterate a l l a, um, and and that's a stronger uh, but or however. Okay. Now I want to be clear. John uses those words too. It's not like John has like no clue that the word Allah exists or something. You actually find that. Uh, I believe it's when Jesus says, do not uh, seek for the, the bread that perishes, but rather uh, seek for the bread that endures. Okay, he uses Allah there. Okay, so um, it's not like some absolute consistent, you know, John only uses the adversative chi, but he does sometimes use it. Um, and the, the synoptics very rarely use it. Um, one of the only ones I'm 
I know of is in the narrative where it says that the leaders wanted to seize Jesus in Mark and then it's it's but they feared the people or and they feared the people even though they wanted to see seize him they they didn't at that time because they feared the people Paul uses uh, a kind of adversative meaning see what you can find out by research okay you don't have to actually read Greek to to research the adversative Kai if you're willing to do the digging um in Thessalonians he says we wanted to visit you uh but Satan hindered us we wanted to come back to you but Satan hindered us and that's that uh adversative Kai okay now there's no thematic reason for selecting different places where Jesus you know if Jesus sometimes used this but other times used Allah there would uh, not be any reason for uh, that I can think of for John to be like especially interested I think that would take us way into the realms of implausible conjectures which as you know if you follow my work I try very much to avoid um so the question is then if, if this is a um if this is a difference is this then how Jesus talked uh, did Jesus ever use the adversative Kai or not now an interesting point here is that scholars are diverging about whether Jesus ever taught in Greek and I want to make note here of the fact that the somewhat majority view not overwhelming but somewhat majority view is that Jesus always taught in Aramaic um, and in a sense it's even easier for um, my reportage view and my emphasizing recognizable paraphrase to deal with the statistical difference the the more common use of the adversative Kai including in the words of Jesus in uh, in John if he always taught in Aramaic so it's again you know if you're thinking oh Lydia's always taking these really weird fringy views and 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 going with this tiny minority of scholars well in a way it would be almost more convenient for me if he always taught in uh, Aramaic why so well because um then then everybody has to make a Greek choice to translate you know then everybody is translating his words John's translating uh his words in some places and then uh you know Matthew Mark or Luke uh is translating his words or their human sources are translating his words somebody's translating his words from Aramaic to Greek all the time and they've got to make a, a choice you know when he uh is contrasting things you know what do we do do we do we use uh a do we use better you know better Greek to translate or do we use clunkier Greek or more Aramaic styled Greek to translate it or what do we do so in a way that majority position is it just it just blows out of the water any idea that well the way Jesus talked is the way he talks in the synoptics not the way he talks in John and it's like you know he's talking in Aramaic both times um however I don't want to camp on that because there are scholars that you know who's learning I very much respect including uh Peter J Williams who I think really endorses uh, my reportage view when he endorses my work he's not just uh, sort of giving it a social endorsement I think he's he's really um 
you know, really actually agreeing with my conclusions and is incredibly knowledgeable about the, the languages. And uh, he thinks Jesus definitely taught in uh, Greek at some times. And then uh, Stanley Porter, who's also extremely knowledgeable about the languages and who endorsed uh, the eye of the beholder. Again, not necessarily agreeing with everything, but did give it a good, strong endorsement. Um, thinks that Jesus sometimes taught in Greek. Um, so I don't want to take some kind of, you know, live or die stand on the idea that Jesus always taught in Aramaic. In fact, it seems to me that it's not implausible from what I've been able to understand that at least sometimes he taught in Greek. Um, so what if he taught in Greek? Uh, and, you know, what if, okay, so what's the, the, the worst case scenario for John here? Just let's think about this. Let's dig down into this. Let's not make uh, sweeping comments about Yohanine style. What would it mean? Well, worst case scenario, sometimes would be that Jesus said, you know, death or Allah in Greek, meaning but, or nevertheless, or however, and John, who, who maybe uh, spoke or wrote a clunkier form of Greek, uh, or even his, his amanuensis, if he had a secretary, decided not to smooth that out of John's Greek, um, and, and said um, Kai, and used Kai in this adversative sense, which you can perfectly well read off from the meaning. It's not like the meaning is lost, okay? Um, and that's it. I mean, that's like that's like the worst case scenario is that there were times when Jesus said Da or Allah, Allah and uh, John in, in remembering or in giving it with this naturally paraphrastic nature uh, of, of memory or retelling something, uh, gave it as Kai. Whoop-dee-doo. Okay, this doesn't, it, it doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't change the meaning on that occasion. It doesn't change the context. It is uh, extremely trivial. I, I'm, I'm tempted here. I'm going to yield to the temptation <clears throat> to make a small digression here. The fact that John's Greek is fairly simple strongly argues against any heavy-handed activity of a uh of an amanuensis or secretary working for john i'm not saying he didn't have one but what i am saying is that you definitely get a, a distinctive voice and it's a voice that does not have this very polished greek it doesn't even have as as polished greek as as what we find in luke's writings luke and acts so uh anyone who tells you or suggests to you that John had a, a secretary who was literally changing the facts, uh, moving the temple cleansing or something like that, is not taking account of the fact that if he had a secretary at all, he's obviously working with a light touch and that it would be extremely strange to have a secretary who's saying, hey, John, how about if we make the temple cleansing take place at a different time, but is, you know, sort of, you know, literally writing down John's uh John's voice, John's verbal voice with uh, these somewhat non-Greek uses of connectives like Kai. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have, oh, look at this distinctive Yohanine Greek and you find it in 1 John and that means that uh, 
something something yohanin idiom something something elaborated embellished something and then at the same time say well john's secretary was sort of like a co-author and he's uh telling john how to change the facts according to high level greek uh compositional devices even if those existed okay uh that's those are uh intention let's just say with one another so Worst case scenario, we have Johannine style here in an extremely, uh, an extremely trivial sense, such that when giving Jesus words, he may sometimes have substituted Kai for De uh, or Alo, perhaps without even realizing he was doing so. But, but there is even more that can be said. This use of Kai is very Semitic. It's very Aramaic-like, and I have this from uh, Greek scholar Edwin A. Abbott. Um, this is not even particularly um, controversial. Again, this is, this is one of those sort of data points that there's, a, uh, there's an Aramaic word, uh, vav, I believe it's pronounced, which is used in very much this way. It can be used in a non-contrastive or in a contrastive way just like John uses Kai. So uh, if Jesus was speaking in Greek, um, he may have been speaking in an Aramaic-tinged Greek. Aramaic would have been, certainly Jesus spoke Aramaic. You know, whether he sometimes spoke Greek, he certainly spoke Aramaic. We might even think of it as his uh, mother tongue, just as it would have been John's mother tongue. Um, so this Kai might even be in some places verbatim what Jesus said if he was speaking an Aramaic styled Greek or if he was speaking Aramaic and John is translating into Greek the the translation to a uh, contrastive Kai may be an especially good translation of the the Aramaic uh, word Okay, and that contrastive use of a connective uh, in Aramaic, which could also be used non-contrastively. Okay, so um, this is pretty this is pretty technical, but what it shows is that it, there is no argument here. If anything, what we may have is uh, Luke finding it more natural, or Matthew finding it more natural to use a greater variety of um, of connectives and John finding it more natural to use this chi, but Jesus himself may have actually used the contrastive chi, uh, being that it is a, a Semitic kind of Greek. Now that, again, that's a conjecture, and I'm not dying on a hill for that conjecture, but we definitely find, considering all of these options, that this is not some kind of heavy uh, heavy change that is uh, theologically motivated or that is putting people's words in Jesus' mouth in some kind of motivated way uh, and therefore does not support the idea, Johannine idiom, therefore, ergo, uh, John is paraphrasing in the loosest way, a paraphrase of the freest kind. This would be a paraphrase of the of a very unfree kind, of a very trivial kind. 
All right, I'm going to throw something else in here fast because this is getting long already. Um, and this is a syndeton. Um, a syndeton is the absence of connectives, the absence of conjunctions. An English example would be Churchill's speech. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in the air. And, you know, it's, it's very emphatic because he just doesn't have any uh, conjunctions at all. Um, an example in John 15, and you can find more of these in John 15. There's a, a relative absence of connectives. I am the vine, you are the branches. Not I am the vine and you are the branches. And that's that's literal in the Greek. Um not I am the vine, but you are the branches, just I am the vine, you are the branches, okay? Um, uh, in the either the narrator's words, uh, I'm trying to remember if this could possibly be John the Baptist's words, uh, the law came by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay, so you find a syndeton in John. Um, and this could be regarded in a sense as an aspect of Johannine style or Johannine idiom. I would say in John 15 that Jesus' tendency to repeat his ideas in a sense is an effective substitute for the use of subordinating conjunctions. And I think it's interesting if you go read that aloud, you find that he, he connects, he definitely has connective material, but the connective material is content connection uh, more often than uh, conjunction connection, which is kind of interesting. Okay, um, but, but a syndeton is also characteristic of Mark's style. You'll find this if you look it up, if you Google um, a syndeton in Mark, if you if you read about a syndeton in Mark, uh, I, can't, I have not even been able to discover if Mark uses a syndeton more often or less often than John does, um, including in, in Jesus' words. Uh, a famous place where uh, you find a syndeton repeatedly in Mark is in the Olivet Discourse. And uh, there, interestingly, it's used as an argument for Mark and priority because we do have parallel passages with Luke and uh, Matthew. And the claim is that Luke and Matthew are improving uh, the Greek by adding conjunctions like gar. They tend to add gar uh, for okay uh in in you know specific parallel passages so uh that there's a scholarly consensus which treats a syndeton as uh more original older okay and treats the addition of the conjunctions as being a paraphrase yes um for purposes of smoothing out the Greek, maybe even that it just sounded more natural or better to uh, Matthew and or Luke, okay? So it, you can't, it, it's not really very consistent if, if the same scholar were to do it to say, uh, you know, Mark and priority, etc. Matthew and Luke improving Mark's Greek by adding conjunctions and also uh, asyndeton, the absence of conjunctions is a characteristic of the way Jesus talks in John. And so therefore, you know, John is deliberately changing Jesus to make him sound more like John. 
Um, now, I'm not saying I found one scholar saying exactly those same things, but what I'm showing you are trends in scholarship that tend to go in different directions. You know, a trend in scholarship that treats a syndeton as early, okay, and a trend in scholarship to treat Johannine style, including the absence of connectives, as being late and being uh, John's uh John's style more than Jesus's style. But in any event, you can see the extreme triviality of this. Okay. If, you know, if Jesus really said, I am the vine and you are the branches, and John writes it as, I am the vine, you are the branches, who cares? Okay. So again, uh, that brings us back to our takeaway, which is that once you get rid of uh, all these other claims, other the thematic, and um, and and also you start getting into the nitty gritty. You you find that what's left that really is a matter of uh, Greek style that would be habitual or would be the way something would sound to someone, and statistical differences between John and the Synoptics. We have extreme triviality. All right. So what this brings me to is my conclusion, which can be a conclusion to all the series, why doubt John? Why doubt that John is reportage, even when he reports the words of Jesus? Um, we found that these claims, in all their different manifestations, in all the different things that they could mean, do not amount to any case, even taken cumulatively, for Yohannine elaboration, for John's being a paraphrase of the freest kind, for John's making up, let's just put it bluntly, things like I thirst, or before Abraham was I am, or I am the vine, you are the branches, um, or I am the bread of life. That it's, It provides no case for that, whether in in these broader thematic ways or in these extremely detailed Greek ways. Yet this statement about how Jesus sounds and how he sounds too much like John and how he sounds too different from the synoptics is perhaps the most heard argument against reportage and against robust historicity as characterizing John. And that is assisted by ambiguity and by a failure to get into the nitty gritty. And I want to say right here that I believe I am agreeing in my conclusion here with many conservative scholars. I believe I am agreeing here with D.A. Carson. I believe I am agreeing here with uh, Craig Blomberg. I, I, I'm sure I'm agreeing here with Peter Williams. Um, and, and what I want to urge is that if you are a, a conservative on this matter, you be especially wary of saying, um, you know, John has his own idiom, or uh, John may be paraphrasing Jesus more than the synoptics. Um, even even if you think that's true in some um, completely harmless and trivial sense, and I would I would urge caution because that those kinds of statements are abused so much by those who mean something far stronger and far more controversial. I myself am not convinced that John paraphrases Jesus more 
than the synoptics. I think we may have paraphrased in different directions, like I gave an example with amen versus amen, amen. Um, and I think we may just have um, trivial paraphrasing, recognizable paraphrasing of different passages. They're writing different, you know, they're recording different passages. But I, I'm not even convinced that we have a case that John is more inclined to paraphrase Jesus and that the synoptics are closer to verbatim. I, I don't really even see a case for that. Um, and yet we're not obliged to say that this is absolutely verbatim. So this is why my book, The Eye of the Beholder, is unusual because I believe, to, as far as I know, it spends more time more chapters on separating out the strands of this claim, Jesus sounds so different in John, in order to just show that they don't amount to a case against reportage in John. And by doing that, and by using my analytical training as well as a philosopher, I have been able, I believe, to refute that case um, most thoroughly, very thoroughly. And to a degree of thoroughness that I don't think you'll find anywhere else. And to some extent, I've reproduced that in this series for you here. And so I hope that you will direct people to it who appreciate audio or video forms of content. Uh, if you or someone you know prefers to read, please refer them to The Eye of the Beholder. Uh, as well, because I, I I even do somewhat more there, and I think it's a really interesting uh, topic, but it's a topic that in no way challenges the reportage model. Thanks for watching the Lydia McGrew channel, where we're making common sense rigorous.